This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 22nd of June. Singapore recently announced plans to set up a new marketplace for the Climate Impact Exchange, which will facilitate the sale of high-quality carbon credits. People who buy carbon credits essentially pay others to reduce emissions on their behalf. But how do such schemes fit into what is needed to tackle climate change, which basically entails massive cuts in emissions across all sectors? Today, we discuss this with Professor Ko Lian Pin, who helms the Centre for Nature-Based Climate Solutions at the National University of Singapore. Thanks for joining us today, Lian Pin. Thanks, Audrey. I'm uh, happy to be here. So I was wondering whether maybe you could start us off by telling us about how carbon credits work. Uh, we know emitters can pay to buy them, but what are the sources of these credits? Carbon credits can come from a variety of sources. Um, the one that I am personally most interested in and, and uh, the centre here at the NUS is interested in are what we call nature-based carbon credits. Uh, these are credits generated from uh, nature-based projects or forest carbon projects including, for example, reforestation projects in our region or forest protection projects uh, as well. Um, when we protect forests that is under threat of loss, uh, say in Indonesia, that intervention can lead to some uh, amount of avoided carbon emissions uh, because the forest would no longer be converted to another land use, such as uh, oil palm plantations or, or forest plantations. And therefore, the avoided carbon emissions can be measured, can be quantified and converted into uh, carbon credits. And these carbon credits can be traded in voluntary carbon markets uh, today for the uh, carbon emitters, which are usually the businesses, to buy them and to help offset their, uh, the emissions coming from their operations. For the new carbon marketplace announced recently, uh, there is a strong emphasis on high quality carbon credits or offsets, as they're also known as. So what exactly does high quality mean? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, it's actually not an easy question to answer. We don't really, well, first of all, we don't really have a good understanding of the quality of, of carbon credits or offsets in the market today. It's a very heterogeneous uh, and also very opaque marketplace when it comes to forest carbon credits. Uh, there are carbon projects that do deliver on what they promise in terms of avoiding a certain amount of carbon emissions or sequestering a certain amount of uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through reforestation. But there are also carbon projects that uh, fail to deliver on those promises or uh, projects that have overestimated the amount of added value that they are contributing to climate mitigation. So at the moment, we know uh, there are a few ways to try to figure out which are the good projects from which are the bad projects or dodgy projects. And one of the uh, things we look at is what we call additionality, right? whether or not the project actually de delivers an added value. It's, it's, a, it's quite a, um, a, an abstract concept but you can think of it in terms of maybe uh, comparing two scenarios. The first scenario would be a business as usual scenario where 
without this intervention, without this carbon project, the forest would undergo conversion or deforestation and be converted into an oil palm plantation. And um, if we implement a new carbon project on this uh, forest, we would prevent that from happening. And by preventing the conversion of this forest, we are avoiding the loss of a certain amount of carbon credits. And, and that amount of carbon credits can be quantified into the, as, as the additional value or the additionality of the, the carbon project. So one dimension or one aspect of understanding what a high quality carbon credit is, is to be sure that the projects uh, do deliver on this added value and they do have additionality. But there are, of course, um, existing standards and standards that have been around for a long time and keep evolving. So it's not as if these sort of projects aren't regulated in a way. I, I guess that goes into part of the, the high quality sort of element, if that's correct. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So, so high quality, in addition to addressing some of these uh, risks of, of carbon projects, uh, including the additionality aspects of it that I mentioned earlier, high quality also includes um, trying to capture the other uh, positive externalities or the other co-benefits of the uh, carbon project, including whether or not the carbon project is also helping in biodiversity conservation, whether it's also contributing to the, the well-being and the livelihoods of the local communities, and whether it uh, may also be contributing to you know, safeguarding um, the local communities again, against the impacts of climate change, especially in the coastal areas where they may be threatened by you know, flooding, uh, sea, sea level rise, and so on. And some of these carbon projects, especially the ones in, involving mangroves and other coastal ecosystems, could potentially deliver those kinds of co-benefits that contribute towards uh, climate change adaptation in addition to climate change mitigation. Why are standards important when it comes to talking about uh, carbon credits and trying to avoid emissions in the first place? Standards are very important because without standards, we don't know, uh, or for, from the buyer's perspective, the buyers wouldn't know uh, how to discern the good projects from the bad projects, you know, the low quality carbon credits from the high quality carbon credits. So by having an internationally recognized carbon standard, the carbon project investors or implementers would then have to make sure that as they establish the carbon project and, and operationalize it, they have to adhere to certain uh, requirements or criteria as laid out by the internationally recognized carbon standards. There are several carbon standards uh, in, the, in the world today, most of them re relevant to the uh, voluntary carbon market, which is where the bulk of the uh, carbon trading happens. And those standards are important but there are voices from the market and the buyers and, and even the, uh, the project developers themselves calling for higher standards, uh, even more stringent uh, and, and more, more um, credible standards to help uh, raise the bar to make sure that what we have in the carbon market in the future will be progressively uh, more, uh, more credible carbon products, carbon credits, um, so that as, as, a, as a marketplace, uh, this, this carbon credits or carbon offsets can become a credible, a trusted commodity that would attract more buyers to, uh, to help the buyers offset their emissions. Now, 
If you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So carbon credits aren't new, although we have seen that they have become increasingly talked about nowadays. I was wondering whether you could you could give us any examples of how such carbon credit schemes in the past have worked. Uh, I think recently, the Nature Conservancy in the US came under fire for selling carbon credits from a forest that was not meant to be chopped down in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I think you touched on an important point, uh, and, and that also sort of re- reiterates or relates to the problem of, of additionality that I mentioned earlier. It is it's actually quite challenging to to prove additionality or to, to be able to demonstrate convincingly uh, that a project will deliver uh, a certain amount of benefits because uh, it boils down to establishing a baseline. And I remember earlier I mentioned the two scenarios. Uh, I mentioned a business as usual scenario. In, in other words, uh, a scenario that predicts or projects what would happen to the forest if we don't do anything about it. In some cases, it's, it's quite easy to come up with a business as usual scenario. You know, for Maybe for some of the forest patches in, in Southeast Asia, we know that if we don't do anything about it and the land is currently allocated for uh, an oil palm concession, then we can be pretty confident that it will be converted to an oil palm plantation in the next you know, three, five years. But in other parts of the world and in other contexts, it may be quite difficult to predict what will happen to the forest. And sometimes there are uh, project implementers or investors that you know, can make a case or an argument for a very pessimistic scenario. Uh, of, of what would happen to the forest if we don't implement a carbon project. And if they overestimate the, the, the threat of loss or the risk of deforestation for that forest, then they would also be overestimating the additionality of the project. In other words, overestimating the value of uh, that investment to protect the forest. And if they do that, uh, then they would be... Um, overselling the, uh, the, the, the carbon project in essence. So I guess one of the, the key things about offsetting is that it's supposed to be part of a, a multitude of steps. But of course, there are concerns that carbon credits for some could simply be used as a way to keep polluting as long as they keep buying offsets. So it's kind of like a, a, a license to keep polluting. So what do you think about that? And do you think that carbon offset schemes can still help cut emissions and reduce the impacts of climate change? Uh, yes, yes, I, I, um, th- that's a good question. Uh, th- thanks for asking. So I, I think first and foremost, the, uh, the most important climate mitigation action that the public and private sectors should invest in is, is decarbonization, is to transition away from uh, the use of fossil fuels to renewables, as well as to increase our uh, energy efficiency and reduce our, our waste. But on top of that, I think nature-based carbon projects or solutions or climate solutions are important for, uh, for, for a very important reason, which is that a big part of our current carbon emissions is actually coming from uh, land use change and then forestry. The conversion or the deforestation uh, of our natural ecosystems and converting them to other land uses. And that itself contributes to carbon emissions. So while we you know, work hard and invest in decarbonization to turn off that tap of emissions, we also need to turn off this other tap of emissions uh, coming from land use change and forestry. 
And therefore, I think uh, nature-based climate solutions must be must be part of the solution. And indeed, it is recognized by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as an important component of the several of the few pathways that they have proposed for the world to achieve uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, but you you did bring up um, a very important point that some companies might try to or some businesses might try to game the system by overemphasizing or overinvesting in buying offsets from the voluntary carbon market, for example, and uh, using that as a way to appear to be achieving uh, or, or trending or moving towards net zero emissions using know, nature-based offsets to offset their carbon emissions while not really doing enough to decarbonize, you know, to, to, to reduce their use of fossil fuels, for example. Uh, that, that is a big concern and uh, some have called it greenwashing. I, I think it's not something that should detract us from investing in nature-based solutions, but rather it's something that we have to deal with we have to uh, come up with regulatory measures and, and, and indeed market-based measures to, to try to reduce uh, that from happening or the, the chances of that from happening. And, and one thing that could potentially uh, help to address that is the new uh, Climate Impact X or the carbon exchange that is being that will be set up in Singapore towards the end of the year. Because if we have this carbon exchange and this carbon exchange is a credible one, that both suppliers of credits and buyers of credits uh, want to be involved in, then this carbon exchange could have an influence to make sure that they, they hold the buyers of these carbon credits to account, right? To make sure that while they buy the credits from this exchange, they are also, they must also demonstrate that they are doing sufficient or in, in implementing sufficient measures to draw down their own emissions uh, in their businesses. So I think there are ways to address uh, that problem of greenwashing, but the more important point is uh, we, we shouldn't um, throw away the baby with the bathwater when it comes to nature-based climate solutions just because of the threat or, or this risk of greenwashing. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.